Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. I'm Larissa Whitaker. I'm Steve Stahosky. And I'm Ben Clemmer. Before we get into our topic today, Stephen is going to tell us a little bit about why you should visit the Toledo Museum of Art. Yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. tired because it's... Uh, well, your, your your fifth wedding anniversary was fairly recently recent yes, as well. Indeed. Congratulations. Yeah. Mine was also very recent. Yep. So I'm tired because we drove to and from Toledo yesterday and spent the whole day at the Toledo Museum of Art, which if oh, you've never been. I, I have. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Really? It's yeah. an incredible collection. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. It's an amazing <laughs> collection and it's free. You only got to pay. Ten, you got to pay ten bucks for, for for parking, and then however much it costs you to get to Toledo. I got to go as a student because I was taking I a one like credit hour sometime. art history class. I'm used to art it's museums the, costing at it's least twenty amazing. bucks. Amazing. The, the the collection is astounding. Mm. It really, really is. So, uh, yeah, if you've never been. Go check that out. That's very cool. They have a pretty cool glass collection. From well, that's what I've part heard, of it. Correct? Yeah. So that was in its own separate building. It's its I own separate building. Is it yeah. paperweights or, or glass? It's everything. Mm. It is lamps by Tiffany. It is um, blown <laughs> glass like like Chihuly. It's also ancient glass. Like we're talking people making glass four thousand years ago. There's representations of Roman glass. Yeah. And uh, so the art museum Babylonian itself is like, glass. it's part of the endowment that runs the art museum was set up by Libby Glass, which was a massive producer in Toledo. Like they had their factories. They were a huge, huge company once upon a time. And so this endowment that, that pays annually for the running of the institution and pays for all of its collection and the curation of its collection, part of the endowment's bylaws were the museum would remain free to the public. Otherwise, the museum doesn't get to touch that money. Oh. So they cannot charge. Cool. Yeah, it's actually really, really That's cool. So, I mean, everything from... There's a there's a Renaissance... There's an incredible Renaissance collection. There's Dutch Masters. There's Van Gogh, Monet, both. It's an incredible collection. So that's what I did this weekend, and now I'm tired because I'm like, oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> it's huge. You can you can spend the whole day there and not see the whole museum, which is, which is amazing. So... Happy anniversary. Okay, thanks. Yes, you do. Yeah. It's Happy been a good August. Yeah. It's been a good August. We are not sponsored by the Toledo Museum of Art. <laughs> I wish we were. <laughs> we are already coming back around for our second movie share. Before we start going through those movies in order, I thought a fun, just kind of opening comparison and extremely small sample size would be seeing how close the recommendation that you made this go around was to the last one. Because I know my picks only missed each other by a few years. And like then, as far, like chronologically? Yeah. Well, just, or just how close together were the movie's releases and how close are they in genre? Oh, because, <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, that's just it. Your, your picks could not have been maybe yeah, further like, away seriously. from each other. <laughs> because you had Casablanca, Casablanca last time. Casablanca last time is what I gave Caleb. And then this time I sent your direction, uh, Heo Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle, which was released in 04. So, 1943? Two? Yeah, yeah so it's two. Separated but, so separated but more than 60 years. Yeah, it was a significant chunk of, chunk of time. The genres are not even remotely similar. One is uh, a masterwork of Japanese animation and, and directing animated, and the other one is classic american cinema so yeah worlds of difference between the two then for me last time i gave you inside man Mm -hmm. and almost famous only came out a few years prior to that came out five years prior to that and uh, this time around i gave that to larissa they are 
both going to have their dramatic moments and their fun moments. I like I they're completely different beasts in terms of like one is cops and robbers, one is very much a coming of age story for pretty much everyone involved. So, looking forward to diving deeper there. I feel like mine are fairly close cuz I gave Larissa uh, Tropic Thunder last time, which came out in 2008, mm-hmm. and then I gave Steven Edge of Tomorrow this time, which came out in 2014. And they're both like action. I mean, Tropic Thunder is kind of an action movie. I mean, it's action comedy, and then Edge of Tomorrow is just action sci-fi, mm. Groundhog Day shenanigans. It was more complicated than I was prepared for it to be <laughs> at 10:30 p.m. start time last night. So. <laughs> We'll get to this, but I started the movie just like quiet because everybody else in my house was going to bed, was like essentially already asleep. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So instead I took my noise canceling mega headphones that I used for like playing <laughs> Destiny and stuff and put those on at maximum volume. Yes. <laughs> so I could stay awake and I restarted the movie. About 30 minutes in, I actually went back and just restarted the movie with the headphones on. So. I was up late. <laughs> that reminds me of when you recommended Kingdom. Well, when you first had me watch Kingdom of Heaven and we were communicating throughout the first act and then it became clear, hey, you're watching the wrong version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so right. in what ended up being like a half hour of elapsed time in the full version, we went back to the beginning and it's like, oh, OK, that makes more sense now. For our previous movie share, I gave Ben Patterson, which came out in 2016. And then for this most recent movie share, I gave Caleb In and of Itself, which came out in 2021. I feel like they're pretty similar. Yeah, they have really similar vibes. It's very similar vibes. Different format for sure, but very similar vibes overall. So none of the other three of us have gone more recent than Larissa on either pick, if I have that right. And then you're the only one who's gone back to the 20th century. Yes. (laughs) That's fair. You know... This this make this tracks. If I had gotten Caleb, he would have gotten the nineteen ninety three Three Musketeers. Oh goodness, he might still get that sometime in the future. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No. It, well, the fact that we've now done two of these in a single year speaks to the fact that we're probably going to be doing many more of them. about to be discussed my pick for larissa uh came out in 2000 is written and directed by cameron crow is somewhat autobiographical the character william miller is somewhat based on the director's own experience and characters like lester bangs and ben fong torres from rolling stone were real guys and i know i immensely enjoy the movie on so many levels but i want to hear the levels on which it spoke to you larissa 
Ben, I felt uncomfortable watching this movie sometimes. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't realize until you had said it just now that it was inspired by the director's life or Cameron Crowe, but Mm -hmm. there were some things. If he is in the shoes of William, the protagonist, I hope Cameron Crowe's doing okay because he experienced a lot of hardship and difficulties with the people he interacted with because he's this aspiring writer. He's 15 years old. He's obsessed with rock and roll. He goes out to tour with a band, and the whole story seems to be about him getting a sense of who he can trust or what's real or who's taking advantage of him or what it means to have real relationships with real people. But throughout the story, there's also sequences where like adult women are flirting with him and like adult women take him to a bed and take his clothes off and say that they're going to take his flower and so I just think that there are other things that I felt troubled by not knowing the context of how it came into being that's fair I apologize for not properly warning you that some of that was coming the context I mean you were set up for hey you the age you were when you were a freshman in high school is traveling with a rock band touring the country in the 1970s. I think 1972 or 73, if I'm recalling right. It's been 73. A while. Been a while mm-hmm. since my last rewatch. Okay, so 73. Seems like a good way to do a lot of drugs. <laughs> well, there... <laughs> Gain a lot of life experience. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. When you were talking about the like real people, real interactions, I immediately started laughing because then that reminds me of the entire sequence that eventually leads to uh, Russell Hammond going to a party with Will and taking acid and the entire exchange that is set up on the phone with, he is on acid. How can I tell when it's kicked in? Cuts to him on top of the roof overlooking the swimming pool. I am a golden god! <laughs> Which is an actual quote from Robert Plant in real life. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> what a life! No, no, the the living members. That's of, a Sunny reference too. Yeah, the or living they quote that in Sunny all the time. Yep. They really do. There I didn't you go. know it was from. <laughs> so the context, mm-hmm. in particular, to this movie, that is a quote from Robert Plant, and the living members of Led Zeppelin. I were able to watch a screening of the movie, and when that initial scene happened, apparently Plant didn't really react. But then later in the movie, when Russell says, "Wait, I never said I'm a golden god," Plant went. I said that. <laughs> it clicked. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, it was just because you and I had multiple conversations about him, and I said, hey, get ready for a younger version. What did you think of Jason Lee as the lead singer of Stillwater? <laughs> I think he was well cast, but the character was a bit insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying anything about Jason Lee as a person. I, of course, don't know him, but he was good at playing it. A jerky uh, 1970s band singer who was upset that it wasn't all about him all the time. Sure, leave me behind. I'm easy to forget. <laughs> I'm only the f- lead singer. <laughs> <laughs> I've worked with people like that <laughs> in the performance world. They still, they, they they exist, mm-hmm. and you know what? It. I've been that guy a couple of times. I'm ashamed to say that I was a little bit more obsessed with my own ability than maybe I should have been. But hey, if you could pull it off on screen, you know you, it's easy to dislike that person, but it means the actor's doing something right. Yeah, he did his job effectively. I don't think I was supposed to like him. <laughs> I want to split this up because one element definitely feels like a separate question. Like, What were some other aspects that stuck out to you or spoke to you, excluding any of the music? And then we can talk about that as a separate mm. thing, if you would like. A lot of it just seemed like, because we talked a lot, Ben and I, before I watched this movie about 
my history of growing up with parents who had a deep appreciation and wanted me to have a phenomenal education in that of rock and roll. But I almost resonated more with School of Rock in that realm of things Mm. than almost famous because this to me as I experience it, maybe it's because I don't have the same connection to this specific era of rock and roll, was just so deeply rooted as a coming-of-age story where it seems like, like you said, not just William, that young 15-year-old man who's at the lead of the story, but so many of the different characters are sort of coming into themselves throughout the story as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you have, I mean, comparing the influences and soundtracks, like Almost Famous hits earlier, and then it's leaning into, like, Zeppelin is there, but then, like, with the exception of Misty Mountain Hop, it's mostly, like, Zeppelin three, more acoustic, laid-back elements. I think there's at least two Elton John tracks. The one that immediately comes to mind, of course, is the, the sing-along to Tiny Dancer when they get Russell out of the party. What did you think of Will's interactions with Lester Banks? I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is consistently excellent. I thought it was really fun that we didn't really get to see it. He's always shot, like, from behind, Um, except for when William and Lester are having an in-person conversation because so often William is talking to him on the phone and getting guidance on like how to write the piece that he's writing for Rolling Stone or how he should interact with the people he's interviewing and traveling with. Um, So I just thought it was an interesting way to frame him to like get the sense that you're on a call with him and he's there, but he's not. But yeah, it kept the pacing interesting as far as like splitting up what must be going through William's head without him having to speak it because you have this other character chiming in to see how he has so many different people shouting at him about what kind of person he's supposed to be or how the world works rather than like coming into getting to guide that on his own. I'm paraphrasing because I don't think I'm going to get the quote exactly exactly right, but I love the line, the the only thing the only currency that's worth anything in this bankrupt world is the moments you spend with other people when you're uncool <laughs> and like not long after he says like man i've met you you are not cool <laughs> it's like trying to just explain everything that has just happened after will has gotten back with mm. his experience uh traveling with rock stars uh, there oh gosh there are so many like little nuances i want to pull at well let's uh pick up from the it's always sunny reference because Zoe Deschanel is in this. She is. <laughs> what did you think of the family dynamic? I I was kind of taken aback by how the mom was framed to be crazy from the start because <laughs> everything she's concerned about throughout the movie is very sane and grounded to me because mm-hmm. she just keeps calling her son while he's traveling this with these rock stars and he's 15 years old and telling him you need to get home before graduation because he's like on an accelerated track and is going to graduate soon and you need to make sure you don't do drugs. Those are her two main concerns of trying to get her son back home and making sure he doesn't do drugs while he's traveling with all these adult strangers for an unknown amount of days and it just keeps increasing. But at the beginning, they try to frame it like she's really overzealous and has such strict rules that her, his older sister left home and he, she and her mom haven't talked in years. But every time she's checking in, it's just very reasonable parent things to be checking in on. In my opinion, if you were to let yeah. your son well, she does, pursue his dreams yeah. and travel with a rock and roll band in the early 70s on his own. But when own. you're a teenager off on a wild adventure, you don't want mom calling you to come behave yourself. Yeah. She's and framed through true. the lens of her kid's experience. Yeah. And, and it's also played by Frances McDormand, who brings just a ridiculous amount of energy to that part. Okay. True. I mean, like, as an adult and a parent, yeah, mom seems completely reasonable. 
Um, <laughs> however, as a kid, I would have been like, man, mom, get off my back. Have you seen Uncle's Famous? Yeah. I'll leave. It's yeah. just been a while. It's been a long time. Yeah. I have seen it because I know we've talked about it before. Like when she shouts, don't do drugs to Will out the open window of the car in the parking lot <laughs> of a concert <laughs> with like, a bunch of other people in earshot to immediately just respond and cool. with a mocking retort. That's not going to happen. Yeah. It's, like telling, it's like handing the kid an open beer bottle and telling him not to drink alcohol. Yeah, okay, cool. It was a dangerous environment for him to be in. And he ends up through the course of the story having to save like this adult woman who's been flirting with him and she's kind of positioning herself to be a friend and mentor, but also is like crossing that line in different spaces. Um, and she almost dies of a drug overdose at the end of the movie. And it, he has to like do the work of calling someone at the hotel's front desk to get a doctor and make sure she's taken care of. Does he learn like a life lesson? Throughout the course of this movie, or is it more just is like is this like a coming of age story? Or is it more just like a wacky like rock and roll baby? It's like meandering. I think that they are they're reaching for lessons, but there isn't anything that I took away upon like first blush with viewing it. What did you think of the entire sequence with the airplane? <laughs> At the end of the movie. <laughs> that was a real turn. There's a part where they're on an airplane and they fly through an electrical storm and they all think that they're going to die. So these band members who have had all this tension throughout the film just start confessing all their secrets to each other. <laughs> and okay. then they survive and, and get to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. <laughs> take it to, I'll take it to my grave. Yeah, well, you didn't. <laughs> And it just, they set it up so well because, like, I, I think at the start of that scene, Russell Hammond is singing Peggy Sue, which makes you think of Buddy Holly, which is not a good thing you want to think about when musicians are on a plane. Whoa. And just from there, the constantly es escalating tensions is it's like, okay, who's how many different love triangles exist between this band and the and it's their just entourage. a circle yeah, no, at it is. some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a Mobius script. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we're guess the biggest name character and top build, actually, if I'm guessing this right. Uh, yeah, Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond. What did you think of his character? Because mm. like getting to finally have a conversation with him is a goal throughout the movie, and I love at the end when Penny puts them together and is like, you two need each other more than either one of you needs to be a part of my life anymore. Yeah, the woman who was like, in that strange relationship with William, the one of the main band guys calls and asks for an address so he could come see her and apologize, and she gives him the young man's address, and so they're forced to sit and chit-chat. Oh, okay. I don't know. That guy was such a jerk because he was trying to be buddy-buddy with William for, like, three quarters of the whole movie, and then at the very end, even after they had this harrowing plane incident, he tells William, you know what, write whatever you want in your Rolling Stone article. It's your story. That's basically what he says. So William writes what he wants. He tells the truth. And then when Rolling Stone calls this man to fact check and say, hey, was this true before we publish it? He lies and says no. And then the kid who went on this whole journey just to get to write a story for Rolling Stone isn't able to publish it at that time. And he's discredited by the writers at Rolling Stone because they thought he was just a fanboy who lied and made up all these crazy tales. So I struggled with him. I thought he kept things interesting, but he also... He's kind of like the villain of the movie. He's in a very weird gray area. 
Sometimes you think he's the good guy. Sometimes you think he's the bad guy. Because then at the end, when he goes to the wrong address, he plays it like he went there on purpose and tries to apologize and reconcile with William. Russell Hammond's journey throughout the movie, because like, you watch as they go from being, because there is almost this level of reverence that mm-hmm. is just heaped on everybody that's in any band that there's interactions with. Uh, whether it's freaking out that David Bowie's in the same hotel. I, I also love just the, when he's initially trying to, when William Miller's trying to make inroads with the band and talking to Russell and it's like, your guitar solo was incendiary. And after he's complimented everyone, they're finally like, oh yeah, no, come on, come hang out. <laughs> and, and, J- and Jason Lee's character is like, yeah, I'm incendiary too, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was cute how he was trying to get into the club and they were like not wanting anything to do with him until he heaped praise upon them. Because Russell Hammond says that early in the movie, just make us look cool. Like mm-hmm. one of his first actual conversations with Will, once it's the context of I am covering you and on this assignment for Rolling Stone. I have a question for you, Ben. Do you feel, because would you have watched this at like 15 or 16 years old when you first encountered it? Maybe. That does sound right, because I think not long after that, it would either have been around there or maybe a little, I was a little bit older. And then also I actually got I was given a book and read some actual writing from the real life Lester Bangs so got mm. some additional context and it's like every everything you hear him bashing in the movie like talking about rock and roll is dead it's like yeah that tracks no he he did not have any use for it seemed most anything coming out of the world of the rock and roll space post 1972 and I love that line when we first meet him uh, and he's at the radio station which was it Polly Perrette, I think, is the radio host for those who are fans of NCIS. It's Abby. Like, again, just so many <laughs> people are in this movie. But when he's talking about it, it or she brings up the doors. He's like, and he's like, kind of bashing. He's like, oh, come on, Morrison, he's a drunken buffoon. And she's like, hey, I like the doors. Like, no, 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 give me the guess who. They have the courage to be drunken buffoons, which makes them poetic. Makes <laughs> <laughs> no sense, but okay. <laughs> no, carry on. I wonder, because I struggled to land on what I thought the film was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Is there something you took away from it or that led you to like it as far as like a message? Or is it more um, the enjoyment of like the scenes that have some humor to them and like the cast and the music? Like the other thing that's baked in with the coming of age story is that no matter how much of a cluster f- everything around you is, we can all gather around a mutual love of music. Mm. I mean, because you have, I think, Russell Hammond's final line when he and William are talking is like, what do you really love about music? And we look to begin everything. And you also have, I think there was actually a deleted scene where what makes his mom agree to let him go on the trip is there's a collective family listening to Stairway to Heaven. Which they decided to save 10 minutes of movie time and not leave that in. (laughs) But it just... In so many cases, whether it's, again, the the bus sing-along to Tiny Dancer, just all of these moments where the fame and the complicated relationships get tossed aside and everyone just being there for the music. There's beauty in that while everything else is a complete mess. And in your teens, you're going to feel like a complete mess at times and having something like music to cling to is extremely important well, cool. so i think that you you've helped me unpack that now uh, many years later i think that was how it spoke to me yeah thank you for sharing 
Anything and else on this one, or do we want to keep progressing through our films? And, and on to the next. And it was Stephen watching with Caleb's pick. Oh, cool. Get yeah. to the edge of tomorrow already. Yeah, Hello. baby. Um, so for, for, for full disclosure, I had seen this one once upon a time. But it was while That's I was cheating. No, see, it, it's not. <laughs> I um, asked. He didn't remember anything about it because I was a rambunctious <laughs> college fellow, and he was spent, a youth. Spent many many an evening amongst good comrades and good drinks. So I remember none of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is I, a perfect springboard out of almost famous. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, when I turned it on last night, I went, "Oh gosh, I'm so tired. Why am I starting this at 10:30?" And then I had to start it over and put the the loud headphones on and, and actually really pay attention. It is a trip. Uh, so, uh, Edge of Tomorrow came out in 2014. Yep. It's based off of a Japanese short story novel. Light novel, Light I novel. think, is what they're technically called. And it of, what was it called? Uh, All You Need Is Kill. Yep. Is the English translation of, that, of the title of that novel. And it kind of didn't really go anywhere. It When it released, it was kind of sandwiched in between a bunch of really big tentpole type summer blockbusters. It had bad marketing, too. It also had terrible marketing. its title is Edge of Tomorrow, but I think only in America. In Europe, I'm pretty sure its title was Live, Die, Repeat. Live, Die, Repeat. And it was Colon, very confusing oh, I what think the I movie was. Seeing and posters there was, that but said, like, also, Edge of yeah. Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat. There so was that also the tagline? In, yeah. Yeah, Live, Die, Repeat was, is they, effectively yeah. the, the, the whole point of the movie. So Tom Cruise plays this American officer military officer he's a media relations officer in a world that got hit by a meteor that carried an alien race that is effectively a virus and all of europe and parts large parts of asia are completely wiped out and the, the humanity has essentially ba- uh, banded together to hold them in check but they're not winning they're not gonna win mm-hmm. and they call these things mimics and I they're don't like, like that they're idea like weird already. tentacly dogs. They're, yeah, they're oh. very strange. But they don't like mimic humans. No, no. thankfully, I kind of thought Thank they were going to go with that too. But no, they're like strange, scary, evil tentacled canine type. Yep. Things. And uh, so Tom Cruise's character shows up, and and he's been the spokesperson for this new combat rig, like a super soldier exoskeleton. He's not like a soldier. He's He's not. He's he's a a, a marketing guy. Yeah, he's like a TV personality, basically, for the military. So the very beginning of the movie opens up with him meeting with an English officer played by Brendan Gleeson? I think so. Yeah, Brendan Gleeson. And so Um, is Bill Paxton, which based on what you've already told me, of course Bill Paxton is in this. Yeah, absolutely. Game over, man. There's this uh, semi-famous soldier from the first major human victory who's played by Emily Blunt, and they call her the Full Metal Bitch. She's awesome. She's my favorite character. Or the Iron Angel. Isn't the Iron Angel. The, Iron, the Angel that of sounds uh, Verdun. Angel of Verdun. That's the Angel name. of Verdun, which Verdun was which the first was like, the major. battlefield. So through a weird course of change of uh, exchange with the general, Tom Cruise's character, Cage, Major Cage, ends up handcuffed and dropped off at the forward operating base for this massive invasion of mainland Europe. He basically mouths off and pisses off. The he pisses general. off the general. The general and the general's like, "All right, well, I'm just going to send you to the front lines then. Like, if and you're going to be in, go very, fight." Very first day in combat, he comes across a mimic that is unlike all of the other ones, and it's. I mean, the the, the beach landing is a total show. The, the these men are getting 
it's it's a meat grinder. They're getting chewed up. It's like they, Normandy D Day. It's Normandy. They like but fly worse. in on these ships and then they get like blown up on the way in, and it's bad. And he comes. So Cage is on the beach. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't even know how to use his weapon. He comes but across. He's this, Cruise, but he's so. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> so he's trying. He comes across this weird mimic that's bigger than the others in blue, and gets killed. Yeah, it's a Dies. it's an explosion, right? Yeah, he 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 pulls a claymore off of a dead soldier, holds it in front of him as this blue creature like jumps on him to maul him, and the claymore blows up and takes them both out. But what? While he's dying, blood from the creature gets on him, and he wakes up at the forward operating base in handcuffs. The same morning. The previous morning. So it is like it's you Groundhog said, Day. It's Groundhog, Groundhog Day. Day. It's a Groundhog Day movie. <laughs> it's a Groundhog Day movie with aliens, and you know what? It's it was a lot of fun. It's, it's such a great concept. It's got some really cool. One of the things I think that makes good sci-fi is when it's something that's moderately believable. So the tech the humans are using is something like, yeah, okay. I could see this being developed. They in have my like little day and age. kind of half mech suits. It, yeah, it's like a weird exoskeleton thing yeah. that gives them some extra agility and some extra firepower and and whatever. Okay, so that's how they're fighting the aliens. Don't and worry, then, I'm a bomb guy. Yeah, it's bomb. Palm Springs came to my mind. Yeah, as soon no, as no. I mentioned <laughs> <laughs> so then he goes, he goes, and he they launch the invasion. He's on the beach again. He gets killed. Wakes up in handcuffs at the forward operating base with a sergeant going, "Get your get up, maggot." Yeah, he's always kicked awake. He's kicked awake every morning. And so then he gets to the beach. He he figures out that the angel of Verdun, Emily Blunt's character, is there. So he tries to save her. Fails. Gets to the beach. Tries to save her. Gets a little bit farther. Fails. Gets to the beach. Tries to save her. Gets a little bit farther. Finally has a conversation with her while things are blowing up and everybody's dying around them. And she says, find me when you wake up. And they die. So then he finds her, explains to her that this happened before they've launched. And every day that he wakes up, something it goes just a little bit different. They get a little bit farther. And it turns out she did this too. But one day she didn't die. It turns out that every time he dies, he can reset the day. And it's because the controlling force of the aliens, the o- they call it the Omega. It's basically can, like, you know, the queen. Like ant queen. They're, hive, they're, they're a hive creature. So, yeah, it's like the queen. It can reset the day anytime one of its alphas dies it does reset the day because the drones are one thing those die all the time the alphas are bigger it looks like an extension of itself so when it one of those dies yeah when one of very yeah kind of similar when one of those dies it goes okay this fight didn't go my way i'm gonna reset the day and do it over but i have the knowledge of what happened but you retain Mm. that if you can reset the day can't you reset like two days back and it resets it. back to whenever the alpha died. So that it's a little that's a little odd, but it resets back to whenever the alpha died. So it's I mean it's a little timey wimey. Yeah. So like it's not a hundred percent foolproof <laughs> rules, but right, at the end seriously. of the day, it's just a fun sci-fi action <laughs> movie. <laughs> so they Tom Cruise's character Cage ends up living through like four or five years worth of the same forty-eight to seventy-two hours, and he's just like over training the whole time and, and doing this and battle over. like every time. So like if. If he's reliving the same day, like, does he, like, let's say his muscles get bigger from training over a week. Does he wake uh, up his and muscles he's don't like, get bigger yeah. Yeah. since they have those. It's just his mind. It's just his mind because they mind. have those exosuits. They have those exosuits. Which so, like, really take care of all the physical stuff, but he has to figure out how to use it. Oh. Yeah. And so Emily Blunt's character trains him. And he's, mm. and, and of course, he slowly but surely falls in love with Emily Blunt's character, who he has to watch die over Dang. and mm-hmm. over 
and over again. Um, and finally, they, they do it, right? They hear the good guys win. They figure out where the Omega is. They, they blow it up, but it costs everyone's life to do it. And so you like you watch Emily Blunt's character die again. You watch his whole unit die. You watch him die. But when he blows up the Omega, a little bit of the Omega's blood gets onto him as he's dying. And he wakes up in the helicopter the day he arrived in London. Like at the very beginning at of the, the movie. At the very, very beginning of the movie. So is he just forced to live through the entire story again? Yeah, so when he wakes up again, the timeline has changed. Instead of meeting with the general, the general's in a press conference, and he's saying, for reasons we do not completely comprehend, all mimic activity has completely ceased. They are all dead. We are just walking in. So the, the, so the it's theory... A happy yeah, it's got a happy ending. And so he, like once it, they beat it, it reset to cut its losses and just I, once they beat yeah. it he beca- i think the the there's it's not very clear i think the premise is that because he had been able to do it before when he got the omega's blood in his system as he was dying he was able to subconsciously reset because they make a point of saying that the only way he can reset the day when he's got the alpha blood is to die and the reason that emily blunt's character lost it is that when she didn't completely die she did a blood, blood transfusion to like help so all that alien DNA was flushed out of her system. Mm. And later, in w- at one point in the movie, like the the final last hurrah, he doesn't quite all the way die, and they give him a blood transfusion. So the last, the last mission the that last they go mission on, they he go doesn't on, have the power to like come reset. back to life anymore. It's this is it. So that's which is a really cool. Yeah, it's a really cool because if you've got a character who, who effectively can't die and knows what's going to happen every time, it's hard to build any yeah. kind of a real climactic. There's no stakes. There's no stakes. So every time it's just watching. So for part of the movie, yeah, it's a little bit like there's no stakes. So at some point, like Tom Cruise's character gets used to the fact that as he gets critically injured, Emily Blunt just pulls a pistol and blows him away. Yeah, there's a there's a moment in the like training montage montage where he like messes up and breaks his leg, (laughs) and like Emily Blunt's character walks over and just like shoots him in the head because she's like. Well, you can't train anymore today, so that's, we're not going to wait gonna the rest, the rest of the day. Further. We'll just reset it so you come back with, like, a healed leg. And, he and he's survived. like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 please, please, no. Boom. Ah. And he wakes up in handcuffs in the forward operating bit. Can he make it further than a day, like, if he doesn't die? Yeah, so, like, at one point, he thinks the Omega is in Germany. And he's tired of watching Emily Blunt's character die. They keep getting to this farmhouse in mid-France. And no matter what he does, they don't get past it. Because it's both of them. And, like, the deeper they get into enemy territory, like, the more difficult it is. So then, at one point, he just solos it. And he makes it all the way to where he swears the Omega is, and it's a trap. The Omega's not there. And then he dies again. But that's got to be, like, a stretch of almost 72 hours. Mm. So, for some reason, he keeps getting reset back to the same starting point, no matter what. No matter how far he makes it. There's one day where he says, screw this. And he goes completely AWOL. And spends the day drinking in London, only to find out that while the humans are invading mainland Europe, the mimics have counter-invaded England, and they wipe London out. Dang. The enemy here knows what you're going to do, and they want you to do it. They've set you up to fail. It it was cool. There were some really, really Mm -hmm. interesting bits and pieces. The acting was honestly great. Emily Blunt's awesome. Emily Blunt's character is brilliant. Um, Tom Cruise was... It was Tom Cruise, 2014 Tom Cruise, so he was still young enough to be completely believable. 
Emily Who's Blunt fun? is like ripped in this movie because she plays a soldier and she was pregnant while they filmed it. That's just a total badass. Seriously badass. I don't know. It was it was very fun. It was a great watch. It was new, different. Again, the effects were great. They're really, they're really quite good. I mean, yeah, because it's almost ten years old now, and it still holds up really well. Yeah, wise. Because for the most part, it looks <laughs> like the, for the most part, it looks <laughs> pretty. Years ago. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> for the most part, it looks fairly practical, except the mimics are, are obviously CGI. There's no way they could have done it any other way. But um, it has all your classic like Groundhog Day stuff. Like, I mean, you get montages of him just doing stuff like over and over again, and you know, you like, get these the speech he makes at the end to like rally the like misfit group of his like squad that J he's squad, with. J squad. And he's like, oh, I know all these things about you, and they're like, how do you know this about me? <laughs> yeah. What was well, that, what's over. funny about that is that that speech is delivered by a different character. So he he at the end of the movie when he rallies J squad for this final. Mission, oh yes. One of the characters, this English guy that. Up until this morning of this day, he would not have known Tom Cruise's character. Sits down with his unit and goes, no, but seriously, he knows everything about us. And I believe him. And they're all kind of skeptical. And then Emily Blunt's character walked in and they're like, oh, no, we're following her? Yeah, we'll go. Because she's like a famous <laughs> hero. And she's oh, the full cool. metal bitch. <laughs> she gets really crappy with people calling her that, but that's like plastered on the side of a bus with her picture and yeah. like media, war propaganda. Yeah, war, war propaganda. The the media people call her the angel of Verdun, and the soldiers call her the Full Metal Bitch, which I find amusing as a play on like Full Metal Alchemist or Full Metal mm -hmm. Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> or, yeah. metal, sorry, my brain went to Full Metal Alchemist first. Apparently, that's You're fine. Good. Full Metal Jacket. Yep, fair. That makes way more sense. <laughs> Yeah, so it was oh, it was a blast. Um, I think it's a it's a great just standard sci-fi, nothing crazy complicated, but enough new. There's enough there, like there's enough there to keep you engaged intellectually, and it's also just like a fun action movie to and watch. Visually, I think. I mean, I'm probably gonna watch it when I get home because my wife wanted to watch it and she just couldn't stay up last night. So I'll probably watch it again when I get home. The overall feel of the movie is brilliant. It doesn't necessarily feel like our Earth, but it's certainly very real. Mm -hmm. So I yeah, mean, it's good. It was good sci-fi, fun action. Yeah, I think what what killed it at the box office is obviously your your marketing was just weird, and it was coming out in between. Yeah, it came out like at a weird time. It's a good one though. I mean, if you like Tom mm -hmm. Cruise action movies, yeah. like this is a hundred percent up your alley. What if you just like Groundhog Day or will Palm Springs? Also, you? You think it will yeah. do it for you. I really do. It, it it has enough of those same elements. Are there jokes though? Because every Groundhog it's, Day movie I've seen has jokes. They are. There are jokes. There are jokes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them are like body gags, though. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, just it, watching him get Tom Cruise wrecked. gets killed a lot in this he movie. Gets <laughs> he dies a lot in and this every movie. Time, I mean, at some point, he's like, step left, turn right, and oh, f <laughs> or and then, know, yeah. oh, and this, that, up the hill, and oh, sh that's new. Boom. <laughs> Things like that where you're just sitting here going, right, because this character has done this a hundred times already. Those are a lot of the jokes, and then the the the, the soldiers. There's a lot of soldier jargon jokes. There's a lot of like military humor, yeah. which like is not. I mean, it's funny, but it's also kind of like okay, yeah. If this isn't your style or not something you're regularly around, it's gonna be. It might fall a little flat. So you know, I mean, it, it was fun. It was very fun. I was glad I watched it. I think I don't really think there's much else to add to that. Yeah, there you go. It's a good time. If you've not seen it, highly recommend. Pop some popcorn. Grab some drinks, throw it on. Her just shooting him in the head when the training goes wrong reminds me so much of when not remembering all not remembering all the character names at the moment. Niles and Niles Sarah. Well, no, not Sarah. J.K. Simmons' character. 
because the, it's oh. the conversation when he goes to visit him and then realize and just ask him to just kill him instead of him driving back to LA in the traffic. So long, <laughs> he'd rather back. just you might die just and me. wake up where he was. <laughs> All right, yeah, get the trash something can. like that. <laughs> um, some of the some of the scenes where Emily Blunt kills him. There's one where they're talking. They're back talking to Brendan Gleeson, the general, and Tom Cruise's character is like, "We've had this conversation before, and every time it goes." badly because you're stubborn and at one point uh it looks like it's gonna fail again and <laughs> emily blunt pulls out the pistol and racks around and it looks like she's about to just point it at tom cruise and tom cruise goes, would you just wait <laughs> 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 it's like oh okay cool they've done this a bunch of times <laughs> so there's some jokes like that that make it you know entertaining but it is it is fairly intense it sounds yeah, like the it. first time around i was like <laughs> No, it's uh, a pretty a good lot. action battle sequences. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also just like those types of time warp movies. Like they show the audience a sense of forward progress. But when you consider how long it actually took, it's like, oh, how long has this character been reliving this? And it could be 550, 500, 5,000 uh, years in some cases. That is probably one of the strongest performances for Tom Cruise because he really does make you feel it by the time you get to... The, the the falling action of the movie, you feel like he's been doing this every day for years. Like it really does feel like he's been doing this that long. Mm. Uh, and he really brings it on an emotional level that is, is fun to watch. Uh, especially when there's a there's a scene where he and Emily Blunt are in the, this farmhouse, and there's a they find a helicopter, like a little little teeny tiny junk helicopter. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we got to find the keys and we got to do this. And she's injured and he's being nice and he's made coffee. And she, at one point she goes, how many times have we done this? How many times have we made it here? Where are the keys? Give me the keys. I know you know where the keys are. And this look on his face, he's just like, no matter what happens when we get through this, you die. You ne- nobody makes it past this point ever. And I'm sick and tired of watching you die. But it, for her, this is the first time. Because mm. she forgets every day. She, she doesn't. Oh, she doesn't he remembers, get to but she doesn't. He remembers, but she doesn't. But I mean, it's got a very talented cast. Even the supporting actors do a brilliant mm-hmm. job. So it, it was worth it. Definitely worth it. Are we on to Howl's Moving Castle? Sure. On yeah. To the Howl's next Moving again. Castle. So from Aliens with Groundhog's Day, we go to uh, Christian Bale playing a narcissistic wizard. But he's so handsome. But he's so handsome. <laughs> he's so handsome. And it's. I checked because. There were moments where the voice was almost exactly there, and this was two credits away from Batman Begins. So yeah, right before he put on the cowl. Yeah, so this was in 04, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, the English cat, the English speaking cast is Christian Bale and Emily Mortimer. Emily Mortimer, and the rest of them aren't a ton of names that I remember. Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal mm-hmm. for Calcifer is the the next biggest one. And a very young Josh Hutcherson as yeah. uh, Markle. Oh, he plays oh, the boy? He yeah. voices Markle. That's funny. So anyways, uh, really different movie. What do oh. you think? <laughs> I enjoyed it. I realized, so I had two thoughts going through my brain, and they both go back to conversations where we have had Autumn on the podcast. Uh, the recent spotlight we did where she talked about how K-dramas can be a good introduction to anime because I feel like if I had seen this and Princess Mononoke and several of the others earlier in life 
I probably would have gotten into anime sooner. In addition to that, I recall our conversations about Spider-Verse where she talked about pause the movie, look at the frame. It could be a poster or a piece of art you'd hang up Mm. in your office or in any space that you regularly inhabit because it's just beautiful. So just everything from being visually stunning to having an extremely strong cast on the English dub, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think the other thing I appreciated was just how well this, although Princess, Mon- Princess Mononoke is the first of his work that I've seen. Okay. And right, it's a little fair. longer than this one. It's a little longer. It's also a whole hell of a lot more brutal. Mm-hmm. That's um, true. This was a little bit more tame in, well, in some ways. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this based off of a book? This one is based off of a book mm-hmm. of the same name, I think. And isn't it a children's book? Eh. Children's-ish like, book? It's like a novella or small, yeah. Like a tweens and teens yeah, type probably book? probably about that. So many of the best stories out there are categorized as young adult literature. <laughs> I think it was originally written for like young adults, teens kind of a deal. Is it also a coming-of-age story? Because I'm the only person at the table who hasn't seen it, despite being told multiple well. times... And I may watch it one day, but I'm stubborn. So the more times I'm told to watch it, the less I want to. <laughs> do you want to do a plot summary, Ben? As best I can. I mean, the base... It's a little complicated, There's actually. a castle that's moving in this one? <laughs> there is. There is. It walks. It almost looks like a uh, steampunk walker. Like somebody mm-hmm. took a... like a, That's fun. Somebody like took the idea of an AT-AT from Star Wars and then made it... 1916 steampunk. Well, oh, it's, so it's, it's mechanical. steampunk with it's enough magic like... to break physics. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And just in terms of like story and plot and different elements, because one thing I was going to praise this for, and I'm realizing I appreciate a lot of early 2000 aughts outings for, is it gives you a complete story in the complete universe, but also has you out in under two hours. Yeah, it's <laughs> fairly well contained. It's, it's brisk, but still lets you sit with so many of those beautiful moments. One of the things Miyazaki brings to a lot of his films is, is a critique of culture in, in various forms. Love so that like, it's anti-war. Yeah, it's very anti-imperialism because it's, it's pretty, pretty clear. It's a riff on World War I where the war doesn't really – like people don't necessarily seem to understand it around. Like the townspeople don't seem to understand what the war is about. They are super gung-ho for their own troops, but they don't take any time to really consider what's going on or where they're going. Also um, came out in the early 2000 aughts. So. Right timely in that regard as well for sure and then obviously the the setting the stylistic setting is very turn of the century europe sophie is a haberdasher yeah she's a (laughs) haberdasher one of the the main characters that's an awesome job title yep she's a hat maker a haberdasher um cool so there's so there's like on the grand scope there's this critique of war of why countries go to war who's it really for what's it about and and people willing to kind of sell their souls to to this war to be warmongering in a way it, when you get down to the, to the characters though it turns into one of the key points is that Calcifer is bound to howl the, the, the wizard and he's bound, bound to howl because he has howl's heart howl in a, in a way is this vain self-concerned conceited uh, individual partially because he it doesn't have a heart one of my favorite lines from the movie, this is Howell, he says, I don't want to live if I can't be beautiful. 
He does say this. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to lead into may all your bacon burn, but that's a completely different that's scenario. Very different. <laughs> Calcifer says that to someone else. Okay. It's very entertaining. Calcifer, this is piquing my interest. Calcifer, Calcifer is a, a fire. He's a fire. So he Ooh. he's a little living fire. He's and usually like, on the stove They have to feed him wood, otherwise <laughs> he gets very small. So oh. like in the morning, if they haven't fed him enough wood, he's like, please, I'm going to go out. <laughs> oh, well, and that's then, cute. And the very first time you get Dang to it. Hal's castle, Sophie starts cleaning things. So she like puts him in a bucket. And starts trying to sweep all the ashes out from his from his, from the from the stove. Like a fish. How's the yes. only one that can move me? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. How's yeah, or is like, help help Sophie? Please, I'm going out. He's like hanging off the edge of this one little log. <laughs> you feed me. And then later she's cooking breakfast and <laughs> may all your may all your bacon burn. See, Here's a curse for you. She feeds in the eggshell. Yeah, but it's the voice of Billy Crystal. But it's the voice of Billy Crystal. Yeah. Mike Wazowski. Yeah. Aww. Um, Howl's heart is part of calcifer because how didn't want to break it or didn't want to lose it when he was a boy and they allude to some things about his background where he had a kind of a lonely bringing up uh, at the very least and so when he discovered calcifer something that he did as he was training to become a, mu- a magician he was able to put his heart this heart of this young boy into this fire elemental demon they call it a demon but it's not not the same Translation is what we would be associated with from a Western Judeo-Christian background. So as Sophie, who has been cursed by another magic user, the witch of the waste, starts falling in love with Howl, she comes to realize that Howl isn't really like all completely himself. And in the end, the only way to really save Howl is to get Calcifer to give him back his heart. And he, he says something about it hurting when he gets it back. And it's like, yeah, but that's how you know you're human. Mm-hmm. So there's this really interesting statement on love on you know accepting loving someone yourself. accepting yourself but loving someone despite their faults and being okay with being your own age because the curse that <laughs> is laid on the main character Sophie is that she looks the age that she acts oh. and she looks like a little old lady so she's a young all woman all the time you know she's like 18 19 20 yeah but yeah when she gets cursed she turns into this old grandma what does it mean to act like a grandma? What she do that's so grandmotherly? She doesn't do anything. That's the thing. She acts like her life's over before she's ever even lived it. Oh. She goes to work. She doesn't see anybody socially. She doesn't really have any friends. She doesn't have any romance. Uh, which was funny because the character then later go later goes, oh, "It's so nice being old." I lo- yeah, she accepts <laughs> it right away. She, she, she like, doesn't yeah, mind the curse. Full. She's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I'm totally down to be a grandma or whatever." But as she starts like behaving socially and she starts being more protective of the little boy markle that is howl's apprentice and then starts really caring about howl and this family that they kind of form over the course of the movie she starts looking younger and younger and for reference they do have two different voice actresses they do yeah so old sophie is played by gene simmons no not that gene simmons and she was born in 1929 emily mortimer i was i believe was born in 1971 yeah so there's some really really cool things to Unpack. There's a lot in this movie, but they do. They, they get you in and out under two hours. They do a good job of one thing that, because this is another piece of media, like I, I'm, I'm glad to hear with so many of these that we do have a, I look forward to going back on rewatch and noticing different things. Uh, I had that experience with another movie we watched recently uh, called The Old Guard, which I did think of when you guys were talking about uh, Edge of Tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my, we move from one movie to another, and then my brain decided you don't need that title anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Use uh, this information. Yeah, well, it was just 
Speaking of movies with a badass female lead, it, you you would thoroughly enjoy that if you haven't watched it. Old Guard. I don't Old think Guard. I have seen it, but yeah. it's on it's, Netflix. It's, cool. In terms of on rewatch, I think I would be able to appreciate this very much in its own way because when we experience things for the first time, we're going to look for places where we find familiar references and things that we like and, and, and some of those aspects because it kind of reminded me of one of the stronger uh, X-Men outings, the second one specifically where they introduced Stryker mm-hmm. because it, because that shows it's not just, Oh, Xavier, good Magneto, bad. It's like, no, 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 no Xavier in the middle. <laughs> and we have these two extremes operating on either side of him. And he's trying to navigate it, that space. And Howl is very much in that space yeah. because you have the witch of the waste, some one end of the spectrum, but you also have the people who are trying to get Howl to comply and have their own reasons not to trust him, and he has his own reasons not to trust yeah. them. So you do have this this dynamic that exists where, okay, he's kind of caught in the middle of everything that's going on around him, and you get to then experience that through Sophie's lines as she learns more and more through the story. Hal gets called up for service because his country is at war. In fact, he gets called up for service in multiple countries because he's sh- playing both sides of the field or he's practicing magic in multiple places under different assumed names. So he gets called emphasis up for service. on the moving and moving castle. Yeah, his <laughs> castle gets, has a magic door that can pretty with much a little wheel on it that lets you know where you are. Yeah, which door? So you're the about door to open opens to. to like four different locations around the world. Oh, yeah. So he gets called up for service, and on both sides, he's like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, not about it. Not gonna do it. Actively going to screw with you." In particular, in the country that Sophie is from, I don't think they ever even name the countries, but that's beside the point. If they did, it's kind of a throwaway, and it doesn't really matter. The head of magic in that country is subservient to the king, and the king has made them a military unit. She's trying to call Howl up. And Howl just takes every advantage he can to mess with them and avoid her because she's scary. Madame Suleiman. She's real scary. And uh, so you get this weird... Howl's walking this... Almost trying to maintain neutrality, but his idea of maintaining neutrality is just to with both sides it just makes him more complicated makes him more layered at the end of the movie though uh turnip head <laughs> what did you think <laughs> i of was hoping head? we would get to him eventually yeah it just He's a it, scarecrow mm-hmm. with a turnip on his head for his head yeah so <laughs> i mean there's shades of wizard of oz there there's sh- like just the different ways it gave me an appreciation for how and granted, when you play enough D&D, everything starts to feel like D&D, especially oh, for when sure. it's like, oh, we have a magic user, we have a little kid, we have this person with this curse over here, we have this bouncing scarecrow that helps in... Sentient, se- very obviously sentient, sentient but yeah. unable to communicate. Uh, it just, it works so well, and I know processing the movie after the fact, like, Sophie, if I'm, if I'm correct, like, even helped, like, bring him to life, or, like, their like, their so, connection. Yeah, it's... Yeah, there, there's some things that you kind of have to make certain assumptions on your first he's the prince the reason the two countries are at war Mm -hmm. is because this prince has gone missing i like it because it feels very fairy tale Mm -hmm. it does it feels very like classic oh that was one of the things i was gonna living scarecrow was the missing prince the whole time and that like ends the war well and so the thing that was gonna he was cursed and at the end of the movie when he gets turned back to human when the curse is lifted on him it's because he receives true love's kiss from sophie but Sophie doesn't love him. Sophie loves Howl. So there's an interesting uh, idea put forth that just because it is a kiss of true love doesn't mean it has to be romantic. She cares about Turniphead a lot. 
and he's helped her and her family get through a crap on this found family yeah. she has get through everything because he is damaged and almost destroyed in an effort to save, save everyone, everyone else from dying towards the end of the movie and she has chosen to love Howell and she loves Turnipet in a way but it's not this like romantic true love's kiss thing that we were expecting and that's what he says and when he gets turned back to human he makes a comment on it, it was well I needed the kiss of true love to break my curse and I received it and maybe someday in the future, things will bring us back together, or maybe not. And he goes off on his way. Mm. This movie is also a clinic on something I do want to dedicate an entire episode to at some point, which is the idea of setting his character. Because the castle goes through so many different iterations as it is cleaned up, as it is reconstituted, as Calcifer's powers are expanded and, never, and things are reset, and, and then a different iteration yet again in the, in the movie's final moments. It, it does a great job of show I mean in a lot of ways helping you to understand the dynamic between Hal and Calcifer and just drives the the narrative forward while also giving you a lot of interesting questions but keeping it all contained so yeah. that it's not just the sprawling narrative where so many details are easy to miss it's like no 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 this there's a reason Howl's Moving Castle is the title of the film so much revolves around the space that these characters are going to inhabit and you see the castle with again within the first minute from an outsider's perspective uh-huh. as it just moves across the countryside. across the countryside, yeah. There's so much to it. I love going back and rewatching it still. And I've been watching it since I was a kid, a little kid. It's a little bit too intense for Sam to watch yet. Um, so just still a little bit too intense for, intense for him to make it all the way through um, Howl's Movie Castle yet, but he loves My Neighbor Totoro. If you've not seen that one, it's another Miyazaki. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. There, there was also almost... A, just when it comes to the animation and like just the fluidity of movement, like some of the elements of things that almost felt like they were liquid or moved like they were submerged in liquid to the point that it's like, oh, that's almost visually upsetting to look at, were the uh, servants of the Witch of the Waste, the oh, kind of almost gross. like ink creatures that just move about yeah. and come out of the shadows. Shade men, I think yes. I, referred, I used to refer to them as shade men when I was a kid. I don't know what they're actually called. And then the battleships had these little wings that kind of oh, moved yeah. about. Like they would just little look like spaceships yeah. moving about through Atmo, except for the fact that it's like, oh, that looks... It almost makes them look squid-like. Yeah, and Miyazaki definitely has his, his very distinct style. So he's the director, but he's also the, like the head animator. He has a team that works with him for every film, but he does he does a significant portion of each film by himself, by hand, and then does the directing as well. It's unparalleled. It is uniquely his. You know when you're watching Miyazaki, and it's gorgeous. But it's things like the, the airships, both in Howl's Moon Castle, but also in Nausicaa, they're very unique, and they move almost in a disconcerting way. There's a lot to unpack, whether it's just from the visuals. Uh, the theme that was written for Howl's Moving Castle is gorgeous, and I love it. It's a lot of fun, so I'm really glad you got a chance to yeah. watch it. No, the I need to watch more and more of his stuff. I think my first exposure to any of his media was actually, and this baby can be our note of rap, putting a bow on this movie and then moving to the next, was Adam Savage building a cosplay of no face and then going into a con undercover seeing how long it would take for people to figure him out which that one lasted a good long while because that leaves absolutely nothing to tell oh yeah it's adam savage under yeah no faces other than the quality of the costume yeah from spirited away that's that one's a trip miyazaki i always recommend they be prepared every single one of them does have a a statement that they make Mm -hmm. um about like modern culture and that's always Mm -hmm. there's all sometimes it's a little disconcerting to sit with but they're always worth the watch. Yeah. 
No, th- thank you for recommending this one to me. I enjoyed it immensely. So next, we'll be talking about Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself. Um, this started as an off-Broadway production. There are over 400 different shows. And then Frank Oz directed the film version of In and of Itself. And he also did the theater version, I'm pretty sure. Oh, he did? I'm pretty sure he was involved in the, the Broadway production as well. Oh, cool. So it was Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> and Stephen Colbert and his wife helped produce it. Yes. But In and of Itself is an exploration of identity done through like storytelling on stage with magic and all kinds of other things. And true to its form, it is very difficult to define or describe. And I would recommend that if anything you've heard about this description so far that sparks interest in you and you would want to experience this in its fullest capacity, that you pause the podcast, go watch it, and then come back. Because there's something really special about this in particular. If you go into it and watch it without any preconceived notions of what it is, you may have a very different experience than you would listening to this podcast episode first. Yeah, I'm definitely going to second that. And I apologize for you two, Stephen and Ben, because you are going to get everything spoiled. Uh, but if you have the option, oh well, definitely experience this without any previous knowledge of it. Considering how much uh, we've done this weekend and how much sleep I've lost, I'll... I won't remember by tomorrow. Go ahead. I'll watch it before I edit. (laughs) (laughs) So it is a 2021 release. It is available as a Hulu original. And I saw it around when it first came out on Hulu. The ads got to me. And I listened to Frank Oz um, on Mike Birbiglia's podcast, Working It Out. And I was so charmed by this production. And I find it so moving. So, Caleb, what did you think? I'm still parsing that out because Mm -hmm. I only watched it about five hours before we're recording this. And it's one of those experiences where I, you know, I finished it and I was like, all right, I have to take a walk and like figure out my thoughts and feelings on this. It's so unique and interesting and compelling in a way I was not prepared for. Yes. Compelling is a really good word. So it's, I mean, it's a one-man show, mm-hmm. basically. It's just this guy on stage. And I knew nothing about this going in, but he's a magician. You know, I figured that out as the show went <laughs> on, but I didn't know that. I thought it was, I was just like, okay, it's a guy doing a show. Mm-hmm. So the main premise is as the audience came into the theater, and he, uh, I did a little bit of research quick, but in the original run, it was only 150 seats in the audience. So it's a very intimate show. As you enter, there's a giant wall with all these tags that say, I am on the top, and then on the bottom, a phrase of some kind. I am an an immigrant. An organizer. A father. Uh, mm -hmm. I am an idiot. Stuff like that. And so, as an audience member, you had to pick one before you got in. That was your ticket stub to get in. You pick one, they'd tear off the top. You could keep the I am thing, but whatever you were, they collected those and put them all in a big stack. And then gave it to him. I don't know even where to go. It's so interesting. Yeah, so the show is broken down into five or six different sections. So as uh, Derek is standing at the front of the stage, there's these five or six different windows. And as it progresses, he will tell a story related to one window and then we'll shift and go on to the next. And it is it is really difficult to define because the whole message as I took it, the story was how it's pretty explicitly stated at the end of the stage shows that you none of us are fully defined by any uh, one of thing. the one thing of the descriptors here and none of us can be like fully explained in any way 
Um, and each of the different segments of the story is an exploration of who he is and what his background is, but also an exploration of identity in general and how your perspective on people or ideas or the world shifts as you get new information in ways that you can't possibly change. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just incredibly compelling. And there, by the nature of it, it's really difficult to summarize without going into each of its details. And even then, you won't have the full experience of what it is until you watch it. But was there, of the six segments, one that stood out to you in particular? I mean, I think the final sequence is probably going to be everyone's yeah. most powerful moment. So the whole show is couched and begins. He tells this story, and it's unclear if it's a real story or not, but he tells this story of the... Rulatista. Of the Rulatista, which was this man in Spain who had been a sailor in the war came back from the war, didn't know how to not be a sailor anymore, so he turned to drink, became an alcoholic, and, you know, his life became destitute, so he turned to playing Russian roulette to make money, where you have six chambers, one's loaded with a bullet, spin it, pull the trigger, and he played this once, he lived, he won the game, and made a bunch of money, but no one cared. Because he was just some poor schmuck doing this. So he came back a second day. And that's and when people took again. notice. Because but they didn't usually come back the second day. Because most day. people don't come back if they've won that game. If you win it once, you get out. And then he came back a third day. And then he came back a fourth day. But by that point, people weren't interested anymore. Because, all right, this guy's winning. They must be cheating in some way. Either you know he figured out a way to cheat the game. Or the people running the event like have just set him up to win. So he adds a second bullet. And then he adds a third bullet, and he adds a fourth bullet, and he adds a fifth bullet, and every time he still wins. And then he's so low in life, he's, he'll add a sixth bullet, and people just come to watch. But then this earthquake happens, and a beam falls from the ceiling and knocks the gun out of his hand. And so he decides, all right, this is my sign. I'm going to walk away from the game. And he goes, and he's super rich now because he made all this money playing this game. And he gets married, and he has kids, and he has grandkids, and people respect him in the town now, and, you know, he's this storied man. And then, you know, one day when he's an old man, he hears a burglar down in his house, and he walks down to confront them, and they pull a gun on him. And he, he's like, oh, well, don't you know who I am? And then they shoot him, and he dies. And so this is all framed. Derek mm -hmm. Delgadio yep. tells that story and says... You know, when I was traveling the world, I met a man in Spain in a bar who told me that story. And then afterwards, I was like, why did you tell me that story? It's so weird. And he says, because you are the Rulatista. And he's like, you don't know me. Like, what about me made you think that I am this person? Like, why did you tell me this story? And so it's framed as he became obsessed with this idea of like, why did this guy perceive me this way? It's very interesting. And so... Towards the end of the show, you figure out the six segments in the wall are representative of the six bullets in the chamber. And he's playing this same game of Russian roulette with the audience. He's telling them his life story for money. And then they get to judge what it's worth. And, yeah, it's very interesting. It's very cool. And, yeah, then he walks just a bit through his life. He talks about he's a magician but started out as a card mechanic. So, you know, he starts showing you all his shuffling and dealing and does some incredible card magic. I um, literally gasped. I've seen it before and I watched it again yesterday and I was still like, oh, how did he, that happen? Whoa. And he, he's very good showman and very mm -hmm. good stageman. He builds up to it. 
Um, you know, he starts with very simple shuffles and tricks and then. And it's all interwoven with this, the story that he's telling, like every little piece that he does throughout the show, you can tell is so intentional and it, he brings such a presence to every performance mm-hmm. because there's cuts in between because there's audience involvement that happens in two different segments of the show. And you can tell very clearly that there was like multiple shows must have been filmed in order yeah, to they, make Yeah, I think they filmed every movie. show and used collected, collective footage to, you know, produce the, uh, the film version. But yeah, and it all comes back to identity because that segment where he's talking about, you know, how he became, you know, this card mechanic or whatever, he talks about the hour of the wolf and the dog. When the sun is on the horizon, if you look out towards the sun, you can't tell what things are because you're blinded. So if a creature is coming towards you, you know, you don't know if it's a wolf or a dog. And he originally got into card mechanics just because he thought it was cool. He's like, I liked shuffling and doing mm-hmm. all this stuff. But then he got into cheating at cards and being... I don't know what term you would use, but shark. Yeah. And he went around to all the like masters and learned all the tricks that they could do. And I mean, it's like really incredible stuff because, you know, as he's built up, he's like, if I do this right, you know, I'll deal you a perfect hand for bridge or whatever. And he's like, all right, so you want all the spades or whatever. So he like shuffles the deck, cuts it, deals out three hands. Three of them are face down. One of them's face up. And he's like, I'm trying to get all the spades. And he does get all the spades in there. And then he's like, all right, that's a pretty good hand. And then he flips over each of the piles. And each of the piles is all the other suits in order. Just flips them. He just literally (laughs) flips them upside down, spreads them out. And it's just the suits in order from top to bottom. Which was interesting because I did not know this man was a magician. But now I'm starting to figure this out. (laughs) And different Mm -hmm. pieces and bits of the show are coming together. Like greater sense of what who he is as he tells you the story on the stage. But even as you walk away, even though you can pass judgment on him, he's also pretty effectively solidified the idea that he's more than whatever he's presented to you in this hour. And there's a lot of it's not a magic show. It's definitely like a theatrical experience, but there's a lot of magic and misdirection involved in it. One of my favorite aspects of it, and I think a very interesting artifact from the show that exists, is every show he would pick out one audience member and kick him out before the finale. He'd be like, all right, in the audience, I need one of you to come back and see the show again tomorrow. A Mr. and Mrs. Tomorrow. A Mr. and Mrs. Tomorrow. And, you know, people would raise their hands and he'd pick one person from the audience and he's like, all right, you're going to come back and see this show tomorrow. You don't get to see the finale tonight. I'm going to kick you out. And then, you know, tomorrow you get to come back and see it. But he had this book, which was analogous to a ship's log that they would keep back in the day. And he would give it to that person every time and have them write down what they thought the finale was going to be. Well, how they thought the show was going to end. And it, it was this massive book with hundreds of entries because every show they'd pick someone who would leave. They'd take the book home with them writing it, whatever they did. And I mean, the show ran in New York, so there's all these creative people and like drawings and collage and artwork and stuff in this book of people. You mentioned that there is someone who used post-its and just went through the book and talked about everybody yeah. else's entries. <laughs> He's like, this <laughs> went through and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so intrigued. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite parts. Yeah. And then he talks about his experience. His mother was gay. And, you know, married another woman and they had to like, they got a brick through thrown through their window 
and people, you know, they got chased out of town essentially. So like the little segment that that is, is a brick like hun midway through a like shattered window. Yeah. I have to go back through my head because there's so so much much stuff that happens. I think too, something that I find really impressive about the movie is how it asks for your attention and then is really respectful of your attention throughout. Because unlike any other movie you're used to seeing at the beginning there's a card that shows that asks you to silence your phone and quiet any other distractions and thanks you for your attention like you're going to see a theatrical production and then if you really give it that and let yourself be taken in by this thing I have seen it several times and I still cry every time I watch it because as he goes through the end sequence it's extremely the, emotional. It really is cuz the all t- the whole story is about how you feel seen in your sense of identity and personhood. Yes. So And he Are you going to talk about the finale? Mm-hmm. We should talk about the letters first. Okay. Cuz I feel like that builds toward it. Yeah. So one, he doesn't refer to any I mean, he doesn't know these audience members. He but he refers to them by their card names. So he has that stack of cards that say I am whatever and you know, occasionally he'll ruffle through them at different points and like pull one out. Like, if he needs an answer to something, he'll ruffle through and be like, all right, uh, firefighter, where are you in the audience? And that person will raise their hand. He's like, okay, Mr. Firefighter, whatever. There's one time he calls for the idiot, and no one raises their hand. And and he says, that checks out. <laughs> <laughs> but at one point, he, he goes to one of the little boxes up there, and it's a little, it's like a mail station box, like all little cubby holes with letters in them, whatever. And he pulls out a random assortment of letters, and then he calls an audience member by their card. So, you know, reflection, come up here. Or, uh, you know, innovator, come up here. And he's like, all right, I like letters. You know, it's an old art form. These are all letters written to me, but pick one out and read one to the audience. And so he just hands them the stack and the, they pick a random one. And he's like, well, on the back of it, it says something. And on the back it says father, niece, nephew, friend, whatever. And he's like, okay. And the the return address is blanked out on all of them. They're all black marked out, unopened envelopes, but they're all addressed to Derek Delgadio. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, open it up and read the letter. And it's a letter from that relation of the person reading it. Like the, aud- the random audience member that's pulled out opens this envelope and it's a letter from her father. Oh. Yes. <laughs> it's very interesting. There's clearly like mentalism elements at play. Like, like, if you want to get into the, you know, backstage magic of it, obviously they somehow contacted this person's relation previously. Because it's actually from them. Because it has, you know, some of them have elements, you know, they couldn't replicate. You know, one lady talks about, like, an inside joke that's in the letter. But it's this very powerful moment. Because the people don't know about that before they open it up. He's like, all right, we'll just read this letter. And, like, the audience member opens it up and then, like, you know. They, like, go through this whole range of emotions where they're not expecting to get this very, like, intimate message from, you know, some actual person in their life. It all kind of builds to the finale where he has not the whole audience. He basically asks the audience, all right, you all picked these little identifier cards at the beginning. Some of you may have picked funny ones, like there's one that's ninja. So, you know, you're just having a laugh or whatever. But some of you probably picked ones that, like, matter to you and are meaningful and important and he's like if you did that stand up and then he goes through the audience and says each of their name like calls them by their identifier that they picked and he gets every single one right 
And it's, people are crying, like having the experience of him looking at them and saying, you picked this one. Mm-hmm. There is something too about it. Like ev- whenever I go back to rewatch it, I feel like more of a person afterwards. And I think that that's one of my favorite things watching any movies or media can do for me. Well, the reason he does that finale, and I wrote down the quote because I was going to figure it out otherwise. He, the way he describes it is he says, true identity is what exists within one's own heart and is seen by another. So what he's doing there is, all right, you picked that. That's a meaningful thing to you, and I'm going to see that in you. And yeah, it's very moving. It's also kind of funny, too, because it's filmed. It was a very popular show when it ran. So there's celebrities sprinkled throughout the whole <laughs> show. Because it's multiple audiences that you see. But, like, you see Tim Gunn in the audience. Uh, Bill Gates mm-hmm. is in the audience. I think you see Kate McKinnon at one point. I just like it. I just feel like more like more of a person afterwards. I'm glad I would, you watched I mean, it. I would highly recommend people watch it. I wish that I had, you know, seen the actual show, but... I'm interested to see what he does next since this was a couple years ago, but I don't know if he's working on any other projects currently. If you're a fan of theater, I would absolutely recommend it because the man's a master showman. Like you're fully engaged and gripped the whole time. Yeah, definitely have to check it out. My goodness. I don't think I have anything to add either. That sounds amazing. No, I've got nothing nothing to add. I didn't see it, but geez Louise. Why do you, why do you pick these because I know you guys wouldn't. I don't know if you would watch them otherwise. This is, like, this is very <laughs> Oh, I would have watched this otherwise, but I had no would've. idea it existed. Right, but yeah. it, this was like a moment when I was like, I think Caleb would like it. And this is my opportunity to tell more people to watch this thing. No, get, by all means. And you, get to, p- and so you get to amazing. pick him next. Mm-hmm. Oh, good grief. <laughs> <laughs> next time it'll be trades because Caleb and I have each other and you two have each other. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's going to be fun. <laughs> I'm, giving you, I'm giving you gritty history. You like <laughs> something I know you won't like. No, I won't do that. I'll try to find something I think you will like. But I we'll want an overlap. Something yeah. I think you would like, but also that you may not seek out on your own. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's the goal, that's though. That's the goal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, Caleb... I mean, yeah, looking back on the two times we've done this now, like Caleb, I knew, would love Casablanca. And I was I was aware that he had not seen it. So it made it an obvious choice. Ben, I thought, would appreciate, at the very least, appreciate seeing something by Miyazaki, especially when he said, told me, yeah, I've not seen, like, any of them. Yeah, I'd only seen one, yeah. And Howl's Movie Castle is just such an odd, uh, fun watch. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the whole point is these are movies that we hadn't come across yet that we would enjoy seeing that now we are being presented with so that we actually do get to see them. And that's, it's very cool. Yours just tend to be these, these incredible choices that would be so far removed from my own radar Mm -hmm. that they, they just never would have popped up. I mean, Patterson, I still need to go watch. I think it's my I think my wife would uh, really really enjoy. It's Patterson. another one that makes me feel like more of a person after I watch it. I just like it. It's so sweet. I feel like on each of my picks, I have had a. This is the pick that would maybe be funnier for me, <laughs> <laughs> or might end up being a potential misfire. But now you've seen it too, and then I thought. Let's go with the more reasonable pick. <laughs> so there's been an element of dialing things back. Oh, goodness. Well, yeah, because you wanted to give me... Uh, from Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn first. Yeah. And I was like, I would be 100% watching it. I'm not a big horror person. My wife would yeah. hate it. And Ruthless People felt like the more 
off the rails suggestion compared to Almost Famous. I bet you would have liked the other one better. Yeah, no, no, no. You, <laughs> you think so? You, we, I know we, nothing about we, it aside from actually, Danny DeVito. The thing is, it. I'm glad. Oh, I, I like Danny <laughs> Right. So here's the thing. I'm glad I gave you Almost Famous to like, because we do watch all these for the most part on our own time usually. Mm-hmm. I want to watch Ruthless People with you. What if it turns out, though, I watch it with you, Ben, though, and I hate it in the moment. You won't. I know. <laughs> I might. Oh, I love it. It is Danny DeVito absolutely unhinged. It is so much fun. And you, I would give Black Dynamite, but I've already shown it to you. That's so, true. Yeah. Again, just it's it. That's that's my logic. Like, let's find. No, let's find yeah. a somewhat unhinged pick, and then let's dial it back to something a little more reasonable. Yeah, I just try to find movies I think you get like that you guys would enjoy. Absolutely. Seen. Well, yeah, there's no there's no point to hand. Like we're we're friends. There's no point to hand you something and make you watch it, knowing full well you're gonna hate it. <laughs> yeah. Like unless you just want to argue for like for thirty minutes during the podcast episode I, for fun. I don't know. I do enjoy or arguing with people. Maybe it'd be interesting to pick a movie that I hate and I hope you hate it too. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, that could be interesting. The movie share of our uh, oh, the, the undesirable. Maybe I could, maybe I could show Ben there will be blood. I hate that movie. Oh. Really? <laughs> yeah. I approach it with at least some level of curiosity, given it's Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. It's so slow. It is a really it's slow movie. ungodly boring. <laughs> it's a very long movie. Okay. Yeah, when, what movies do I actually Movie hate? Share 2024, the <laughs> that'd be a That'd be an interesting one. Yeah, you know, it could be a change of pace. Oh, my goodness. Well, as we are just now just kind of spitballing, looking at the, the future here, uh, I don't know if this is something that immediately each grabs each of you but i was trying to figure out what my favorite quote would be from the movie i was given and the movie i gave Ooh. and i'm going to say that and give you guys some time to think about it I also i want to mention one other almost famous thing that i forgot because again there's so many little details of like oh this person's in this movie there's also little moments that i love about it where there's a character in the movie who says one line and man they deliver the hell out of that line but that's it uh whether it's uh their introduction of like a bunch of the band managers and one of them just goes, hello brother. It's the only line he has in the entire movie, but man, he owned it. Uh, or there. And also in that sequence, the manager for humble pie is played by Peter Frampton, who in real life was in humble pie. (laughs) And also I think was their primary musical consultant for the movie because he plays the guitar work, uh, for pretty much all of the live stuff that you hear. Oh my goodness. Do we want to go out on quotes if that did speak to you guys? Or I like Man, I don't know any quotes from Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah I, if I had been given the assignment before the podcast. I'd <laughs> like no, I, I mean, there, there's, there's some good ones in, in Edge of Tomorrow, but I've only seen it the one time consciously. So... I don't, I don't know. I like the idea. I do. Not dogging mm. on the idea. I just yeah. have no quotes in my brain. Yeah, that's fair. And, I, and the, the two I got lend themselves very easily to it because my brain immediately goes to may all your bacon burn <laughs> here's and a I, curse for you may all your bacon burn <laughs> that's such a great line yeah oh goodness and there's and there's so many good lines in almost famous and i think i already hit on most of them so we'll we'll leave that there combat is the great crucible the one redeemer the the, the oh, whole the, yeah the, bill the, paxton. The, drill, the drill sergeant bill mm-hmm. paxton's character the drill sergeant he delivers this monologue like eight times over the course of the movie, and it's just a bunch of garbage. I love it. There's a great moment in Edge of Tomorrow, and it, it's tasteful. It's not shown on screen, but I think it's when he's 
first like repeating days so he's not very skilled yet and he's trying to like sneak away from like a drill formation so he like ducks down and there's a truck coming by and he's like oh i'm gonna roll on over like roll onto the truck and like hide under it and he gets run over by the truck (laughs) (laughs) the the sound tom cruise makes is (laughs) as he gets run over and bill Bill character steps over goes man what the hell did you do that for like what? And then, of course, the next scene is him doing it again, but succeeding. Yeah. <laughs> just, I'm glad that he was learned. good. He learned. That was good. He the learned. sound, <laughs> the sound when he gets run over, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, there you go. That's my favorite quote from Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> I feel like that's a good note to go out on. <laughs> Welcome back, dear listener, to the Scenes of Power. We are finally through the Fellowship of the Ring. We're starting the two towers now. We're looking at the opening about ten minutes or so of the of the second film. So looking at the scene in the Misty Mountains and in the Mines of Warrior, where instead of following the Fellowship out the door, we follow Gandalf down the hole. Um, and then we are going to look at just kind of how uh, this movie hooks your the audience differently than the first movie. Um, whether or not it succeeds in doing that. And we also were introduced to Gollum for the first time in earnest. Because you see snippets of him in the first movie, but he's not, he doesn't have really met very many lines, and he doesn't really play any key roles in the first movie. But now we're introduced to him as the, one of the new key players for at least this movie. And we watched up to the point when he was captured. Yeah, where he tried to ambush the. Restrained. Yeah, he tried to ambush Frodo and Sam, and it didn't work out well for him. One of the things I really love about the beginning of this movie is you get to see what happened to Gandalf, or at least part of what happened to Gandalf. He, he fell. Is, he fell. Right, and we saw that in the in the the Fellowship. He but fell with now style, we get to, though. Yeah, now we get to see <laughs> what happens when he falls, um, and him falling fighting the with Balrog. style. I mean, it's impressive. I mean, just those wide uh, camera shots of just the mountain ranges in the beginning is just gorgeous to watch. This the it, I don't know if you caught it or. You know, you probably did, but there were their lines were happening underneath the music as they were they were we were getting closer to where we would eventually pan through the mountain and into the action shot going on where we would then watch. So there's some of those lines that were happening on the bridge of Kazadum, but happening underneath the music as we're flying over the mountains. Yeah, because mm. when I was a kid, my brother who did see Two Towers in theaters, I did not told me that the first line of this movie was also in Fellowship. And so at that point, young me, who loved Fellowship and hadn't gotten to see the new one yet, was trying to figure out what it was. And then, of course, it was You Shall Not Pass. Not the iconic mm. second one, but the first one. Yeah. When he initially turns around and faces the Balrog. Yeah, exactly. That is the first line, but it's it's buried underneath the orchestral score and underneath that wide it's moving shot. So it's a little echo It's in almost the part, It's part of the soundscape. It's not something you're, like, unless you're really paying attention for it, it's pretty easy to miss. Of course, score from Howard Shore coming out and just being bonkers and wonderful as usual. And it really does help set the tone for the beginning of the movie uh, where you're getting these these big landscape shots and then we're back into Casa Doom. You have a revamp of the bridge of Casa Doom and then some new piece, some mm-hmm. new music coming in. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, Larissa, you haven't seen the rest of this movie yet, but mm-hmm. why landscape shots going directly into action 
is kind of just all of what the two towers is about. There's a lot. There's a lot of that because you spend so much time with the with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli going about their journey, which we, we haven't watched yet, in the lands of Rohan, which is wide open plains. and um, So there's a lot of big, wide landscape shots going on um, because you, you're kind of showing this how, how vast the landscape is around the characters and and the much, scale of the fight. Yeah, the scale it keeps of the fight. Escalating. That helps too. Um, Does it make it feel more like, wow, they really have a long way to walk? That, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it adds. It, it does it, add. It makes the world feel larger. No wonder this journey is taking three movies. Yeah. Like. Yeah, because you start seeing like some of the scenes that are coming up. You just are. It is just Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli running and running and running across this huge landscape where it's like, every day all day and you've not gotten to where you need to get to oh man (laughs) some of the best lines uh, in the movie come from Gimli during those times where he's just just breathe that's the key (laughs) (laughs) well even in the the second bit we watched with Frodo and Sam in like the the rocky terrain well and Gimli talked about that uh, at the end of Fellowship Emin Muil Emin Muil yep a mindless labyrinth of razor sharp rocks, and after that, it just gets better. You're like, wait a minute, hang on. And they can better? see more doorway. Yep. in the distance. That's what they said. That's what they said. They're like, you know, yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> we can't get there. We keep getting lost in this just rocky, craggy, awful, bog-like. Ugh. So, anyways, so that's you know for the for the listener. That's what we took in. What are your thoughts? I mean, especially considering the opening of the first movie covering so much history uh, and so much backstory, and then this movie just tossing you right into it with something at least you've already seen. I appreciate that. I thought it was a nice, subtle way to kind of remind you of where you were um, with the previous movie, like a a refresher on how what happened last week on. There's a trick that kids shows do a lot where they'll cut to commercial break, and then when they come back... One of the characters recaps in a sentence the thing that just happened. Mm. Yeah. Avatar The Last Airbender does it pretty much every episode. Seamlessly, though. And it's pretty much always Sokka yeah. who has like one line just recapping the last 10 minutes. So the kids who had to watch through the commercials, they come back and they're like, oh, yes, this is where we are. Mm. Yeah. What's funny is if you watch, you're like watching those now without the commercial breaks, it flows. It's just Sokka being Sokka for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah. <laughs> they change the perspective. And follow a different character from that point, which I really think is cool. It's one of those moments in storytelling where it's like, okay, we followed this group already, but what happened? You know, in the first movie, we're, we're thinking what happened to Gandalf. Well, we assume he died, and everybody else does too. Now we're getting to really start finding out what happened to Gandalf, and it's well, yeah, he fell, but man, was that fall! Some, yeah, because instead of having a prologue that moves at the pace of elven memory as we have with Fellowship, this one happens at terminal velocity. Yeah, <laughs> with the Glamdring soundtrack just being something that if I really, really need to get something done, I'll just put that song on repeat. It's a, it's a great like that was the extension of the Bridge of Khazadum. The name of Gandalf's sword is Glamdring. That's a fun thing to the name a sword. Hammer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Foe Hammer. The Foe Hammer. It was made. A long time ago. 
It's a special sword. It's a very famous sword. Hits people hard. Can I say something about the Lego movie? Because every time I watch the (laughs) Lego movie, Little Vitruvius makes me think of Gandalf, even though I have extremely limited knowledge of Gandalf, and Gandalf is a separate Lego character in the Lego movie. This is true. But Vitruvius has a, like, mostly eaten sucker. Does Mm -hmm. that compare it all to it's like Gandalf's staff it's like his wizard staff <laughs> but not yeah. the sword that we're talking about not and the sword no. and in the hands of a mentor character that tracks mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think you looking at the similarities between gandalf and vitruvius is like there's this is this old wizardly mentor character yeah who is not necessarily in the center of the action all the time but is pushing other characters towards well and that i mean that's gandalf like changes that that's hero's bit. journey like yeah. textbook there is always an old mentor character they just mm-hmm. have similar vibes to me yeah like they're, they're fun they got a little bit of pop to them they're like old and a little bit tired of everything yeah a little snarky yeah gandalf which i'm sure is still pretty standard but i just always think of vitruvius the more and more i get to see of gandalf well and but gandalf's gonna go through a pretty major shift here in a minute mm. everybody this movie is in the middle of the trilogy, right? But there is a lot. There's a, there's a big, massive turning point in this movie, which there has to be. Does the whole to, movie to, to feel like a the... second act? Yes. Yeah, it's definitely the second act, but it's a very eventful second second act. There's a lot that happens. There's a lot. There's it doesn't a lot of new feel like it's just a bridge to get to the third one, though. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of important stuff that happens, especially character. There's a lot of important character stuff that happens. And then those characters are important for this movie, and maybe less important for the third movie in some ways. One of the characters we're going to get introduced to is Aylmer. Uh and when we get introduced to him, you'll like him. It's Carl uh, Urban. He's in the third movie, and he's important, but he is more important in the second movie. Mm. And he's he got has more to do. Beautiful long blonde hair in this he movie. He does. Although part of that's his helmet. It's a wig. Part of that's his helmet. <laughs> his helmet has a plume. Yeah. So part of that long flowing gold is actually his helmet, and then his hair does look. I mean, a little he bit makes more it work. That's all I'm saying. He looks great. <laughs> Freaking love it. So like, the, the second movie is definitely it, it. It is very much so not a bridge to get us to the third movie, but it is a second act. So it, we are still pointing in that direction. We're still heading in that direction. But the people that are introduced in this movie are, there's some really cool characters that well, are Well, speaking up. of people more introduced or explored in this movie, when we first see Gollum at the start of this, I was like, this guy's kind of goofy. And then as it went on, it very quickly escalated to where he was just scary and gross. Yes. How much time do we have to spend with Gollum? Um, He's a lot. The rest lot. of the movies. Oh. Yeah. So he's actually really, really important. And this is one of, this is the role that, He's supposed to be scary and gross, so yes. he's doing a yes. good job at that. Well, you, yeah. they said in the scene we watched that they could smell him. Ooh, they couldn't know. see him, well, they could but they could smell him. him. They thought there was a bog or something nearby. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm. no, no, it is. Not. It is, so it is, it is the unwashed creature. He bit Samwise, he which did. is why I think he is a vampire or vampire esque. <laughs> it's just gross. He's gross. He also. I think he's more feral. Yeah, feral. That's for sure. Like um, in Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed, those two skeleton men who have big eyeballs that make up their whole face, mm-hmm. they remind me. I think he almost moves more like the the creatures from the first movie. Oh, those are scary, too. Yeah. I don't like I to think about they're like those. They're like crawling around, right? and they're, they're like... The purple guys? Their knees are like ah! almost above their back. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. They yeah. are similar to those as well. I but can't remember is, what those monsters that, are called. That first role that Andy Serkis took where it was motion motion capture. So that's Andy Serkis on set. 
but then they motion captured over for the creature of Gollum. But the movement, the expression, I yeah. Mean, that, but there's so Andy much Circus. to that performance that, voice that is amazing. Is Andy yeah. Circus. So, and Gollum goes through a lot too. So we've been introduced to Gollum, but Gollum is a character with effectively split personality disorder, and we're going to meet the other one too. <laughs> and that gets is the really other one friendlier, much more friendly. Yeah. yeah, much more friendly, to a point. Weta, the yeah. special effects company that was created for the Lord of the Rings. They're all geniuses. Like, They're incredible. And without them, Lord of the Rings wouldn't have worked. Andy Serkis' performance wouldn't work. And they paved the way for the way we shoot movies now with this kind of motion capture tech. This was the first movie that really showed this works and it can work really well. Yeah, because mm. it says something about something that came out in the early 2000 aughts that most films and TV shows that would attempt anything even in the ballpark usually would fall short and it really like I I think for a lot of people who would watch these movies eventually came away with okay it's like Gollum Thanos I mean it's rare that you get that strong of a CGI performance that is done that well across the entire spectrum from the actor's performance to everybody so the on the actors, computer side that had to make it happen. And animators working in unison to create mm-hmm. something really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And everybody had the time that they needed to really deliver a solid product. Because there, there was a very bad, <laughs> rough, maybe bad's not the right word. There was a very rough rendition of Beowulf that came out in <laughs> the late 2000s. Late 2000s, yeah. That was done completely motion capture. It's an interesting watch. If you've not seen it, but it got, I feel like it got rushed. It also didn't need to be motion capture, but that's beside the point. It got rushed. And so the CGI, while the whole movie is animated and they had, but they built a set and they had actors on set and then animated over. Um, It's not a lot of extra steps. Yeah. It's not as clean Mm -hmm. as what they did with Gollum and that, and what they did with Gollum happened four or five years before that Beowulf. Well, and, and even now, yeah. Gollum still looks pretty gosh darn good. Yeah, because Beowulf. Well, Beowulf is one of many pieces of work where Robert Zemeckis has tried to do kind of that as realistic as possible human portrayal. Where they're talking about Beowulf, Polar Express. Robert Zemeckis directed Beowulf. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Robert Zemeckis of Back, Back to, to the, the Future. future. Yeah. yeah, no. Which, <laughs> his ev- yeah. Which, yeah. So <laughs> even after all of these technological efforts that have happened in the 21st century, Back to the Future is still far and away his best work. Oh, and it's. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't just, understand what makes yeah. Back to the Future so good, but I love it. It's such a strange movie. That's an, a separate episode, but it brings yeah, we'll my talk. brain. Yeah, we, we will need to talk about <laughs> Back to the Future at some point, but you're not wrong. So, same guy. He we'll do an this. episode on perfect movies. Yeah. Could also do an episode on practical effects. And that's another area where, like, again, Lord and of the Rings does such a good job of making those CG effects work as well as having some wonderful practical yeah. makeups and costumes and other elements that all blend together pretty seamlessly. Well, I think what they were still working with the idea that you needed practical effects. And for a little while there, after Lord of the Rings in that mid, you know, 08 through like 2014-15, there, there was a moment there where it felt like all effects were CGI. And I think, actually, uh, like we mentioned in the Indiana Jones episode, that's one of the failings of the fourth Indiana Jones installment was too much reliance on CGI. You know, I think that's why the Mission Impossible movies are so popular, because they do all their stunts for real. That might be part of it. And, you know, I like the first three. 
Like, I, I've given up after. I, like, I just haven't watched. Past I mean, the they three. literally strapped Tom Cruise to the side of an airplane. There is uh, an, an interview that I actually uh, showed uh, the two of you, he says, pointing to Caleb and Larissa, with Harrison Ford and Phoebe Waller-Bridge talking about the ending of Dial of Destiny and talking about just what a lift it is to pull off that ending sequence where you're going to have a lot of moving parts. But what really sells it is the humanity behind the performances. And that tracks for Lord of the Rings as well. Mm -hmm. You have this massive flame monster descending into a pit, but you also have these intense close-up shots of Ian McKellen that help sell the emotion of that fight. And then you have Frodo and Sam and and just all of the emotion in their fight with Gollum as well as Andy Serkis' performance driving home the fact that as an audience you're seeing in better light for the first time something that you have not seen before yeah mm. and and all of all of Gollum throughout this movie and and the third movie he feels very real he feels very very present and very human in a way gross and and, and not the best parts of humanity but he feels very very real it's one of the things that drives the next two movies is how real everything does feel around the characters and how how real the characters come across. And jumping back from this prologue to the one for Fellowship, I, if I'm remembering Gladriel's phrasing right, for 500 years it poisoned his mind, referring to the ring. Yeah, so she does say that. How much of Gollum's condition is his fault and how like there's elements of his origin and his motivation that come up a lot in this movie and then there are also referenced in, in ways in Return of the King that are interesting. So there's a lot of fun Gollum-related areas to come. I don't think we're going to watch the scene that directly proceeds from where we stopped. But for your knowledge and benefit, they begin to use Gollum as a guide because he knows how to get to Mordor because he he's was... He's been there. He's been there. He was captured and taken there and then, like, escaped. So he knows how to get back. So they're like, he's all right. He's scrappy. He's pretty scrappy. And they're like, <laughs> all right. hard to kill. You're going to take us... To Mordor. I'm not sure where to place my percentage on this because at this point, I feel like I've invested enough time and energy in getting to know the scenes that even if I may not do a full watch, I feel compelled to see where this is going. So I'm going to bump up. I'm going to go to like a back to a 42% or so just Ooh. to see the next scene. Not saying maybe about the whole franchise, but moving forward, I'm just curious. I think when we do finally get this done with this, you're going to. I hope you're going to want to watch the all three movies, even if it's just the theatrical version, at least once. Well, so you can watch see... the theatrical versions first, regardless. Well, yeah, for sure. No. Well, maybe. Yes. No. yes. You always, <laughs> always start with the theatrical versions. <laughs> but I think you're going to want to see how these scenes link to each other by the time we're finally done. I hope that's my goal is that you're going to want to see this at least once all the way through. That'll be our experiment. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the Storytelling Breakdown blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram, and you can reach our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Again, people, that is info at storytelling-breakdown.com, not underscore. You can also find our miniseries episodes for Campaign Diaries and RPG Decades at our website and where podcasts are found. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. 
These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.